1: approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian
2: Salek. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. And inevitably, the virus extends its sway even further. May have infected, in fact... Far more people in the UK than scientists have previously estimated, perhaps as much as half the population. That's according to modelling by researchers at the University of Oxford. If the results are confirmed, they imply that fewer than one in a thousand of those infected with COVID-19 actually become ill enough to need hospital treatment, and that all comes as the government's brought more than three million antibody tests for coronavirus. The chair of the Doctors Association UK, Rinash. says more testing can't come soon enough.
3: Absolutely desperate. If you live in a household and one member of that household suddenly develops symptoms and the whole household, including the NHS workers, are having to self-isolate and ultimately this will cripple the NHS.
1: And at the same time, Health Secretary Matt Hancock announcing a major rise in NHS staffing. That's because of the return of retired medical workers. That also brings nursing and medical students to the front line as well. So from both ends of the career spectrum, we're seeing people drafted in to try and fight this crisis. Well, joining us now is Andrew Mitchell. He's a Conservative MP for Sutton Coalfield and a former Secretary of State for International Development and Chief Whip as well. Andrew, we've got to start with another story that is set to affect you, certainly. Uh, The early shutdown of Parliament for four weeks, expected to reopen then on April the 21st. Is this the right move coming at the right time would you say?
3: Yes, good morning. I think it is. And uh, it's important that Parliament sets a good example. Uh, Members of Parliament this week have been very careful to try and make uh, the important arguments to hold the government, the executive to account, but not to cause votes. And you'll have seen pictures of the, the very important debate on Monday this week about the uh, new measures, the very strong uh, measures which the government is to be granted in order to combat uh, this crisis and members of parliament were sitting uh, at least uh, two metres apart. Uh, I was in the debate uh, intervening when I thought it appropriate on behalf of my constituents but basically members of parliament were showing restraint and we made it clear that we didn't think it was appropriate to have uh, divisions, which would have put members of parliament in very close proximity in a short period of time. So I think the, the, uh, way parliament has handled it so far is right. It's the right balance between scrutiny of the executive, but also parliament continuing to sit. Once these emergency measures are, are through, then the parliament, uh, should close down. It would normally be closed down for quite a lot of the next month, five weeks. Um, Because of the Easter recess. Uh, And uh, I think this is right. And I hope very much we'll be able to continue continue the important work of building the government to account back uh, at the back end of April.
2: Indeed. Well, Andrew, I mean, let's pick up actually on that debate you mentioned about uh, the measures that uh, the government is asking for. And I know that you and indeed your colleague, David Davis, had expressed earlier some concern about these measures in the sense of how long they would go on for and whether they would actually be uh, reviewed at any point. I mean, we are talking about restrictions on civil liberties, freedom of movement, gatherings, um, and, and they don't necessarily seem to be having as much effect as perhaps was intended. I mean, do you think the government's handled this bit well?
3: It's very difficult in in an open democracy like ours to get everyone to behave in a a, a sensible way. I think, you know, the vast majority of people are adhering to the government's uh, instructions. I was very struck. I was in my constituency uh, briefly yesterday, and I was very struck by the deserted streets, by the fact that uh, people were keeping the right distance apart, uh, shops and uh, all the relevant... Uh, classification were shut. Um, so I think the vast majority of people are abiding by the restrictions, but, but not everyone. And that's why the government has made it increasingly clear that we have to adhere to, uh, to these instructions. In, 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 in respect of the bill on Monday, you're, you're quite right that many of us on both sides of the House had reservations about the two-year uh, proposal the government had for these powers. Our the government uh, agreed to uh, make sure that we could review them after six months. So that was that was the government listening to the House of Commons. Uh, there, 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 there remains a question about whether or not uh, any six-month debate and vote would be on a take-it-all-or-leave-it basis. But the government was uh, clearly listening. I um, was one of those who supported an amendment tabled by David Davis, who has a long and distinguished um, career as a supporter of civil uh, liberties in the House of Commons. And um, uh, I I took the view that a one year limit was right, because that would give the government a chance also to review the legislation and come forward with a new bill, if necessary, to uh, face the the changed circumstances. And this was a 321-page bill, nearly 100 clauses, Uh, put together, albeit with some considerable planning a few years ago, but put together basically in four days. And inevitably with the best will in the world, and even with such a heroic effort, there will be changes that are needed because things weren't dealt with uh, properly when they were drafted. That's inevitable because of the time that was taken, but also because the circumstances will change. So I think that uh, it would have been better to accept that amendment, but As I said earlier, the House didn't want to uh, cause a vote. The government did show that it was uh, listening and most of us, I thought, didn't want um, uh, the good to be the enemy of the best.
1: But Andrew, what happens if circumstances do change, which it seems like they will? This is a very fast moving story and Parliament's been very quick to adapt to it. But if we are in recess or a suspension of Parliament of any form, MPs can't then act accordingly.
3: Well, we will be able to have our voices heard through the media, through social media, and and that's incredibly important. But you can't pass legislation? No, we can't. That's true. But in these circumstances, I think it's a sensible starting point. Uh, for Parliament now to go into recess. And, of course, if circumstances change, the Prime Minister or the Speaker believe that they are such that Parliament should be recalled, then Parliament, there is a mechanism in those circumstances for recalling Parliament. But uh, let's hope that isn't necessary and that the grip the government has increasingly shown in the last few days is now sufficient for us to uh, stand together, make progress, do the right thing, protect the National Health Service, and come through this crisis.
2: Well, well, Andrew, I noticed the phrase used there, the government has sort of got a grip in the last few days. Did you get a sense that up to this point, perhaps they hadn't? Perhaps, as many senior doctors and scientists have said, this was something where they they missed what they should have done much earlier on?
3: I, I think that the science and the medical evidence Uh, have become increasingly strong. And inevitably, in a situation like this, in in the early days, there is a lot of debate and there's some doubt about quite how to proceed. And I think inevitably the government suffered a bit from that. But uh, once the evidence became clearer, I think ministers have reacted uh, quickly and effectively in the decisions that they have made.
1: What about Boris Johnson himself? We saw the statement, the pre-recorded statement on Sunday. But since then, there's not been a whole lot from him. No statement in the Commons, no media interviews. There's been a lot of discussion about uh, sort of devolved or delegated leadership throughout the flooding as well. But surely in a time of crisis like this, you want to be seeing the prime minister as much as possible to reassure uh, the people and to, to really instill those measures that have been laid out.
3: Well, I think he got the balance just about right. He he did the major statement. Uh, the uh, health uh, ministers have been uh, there. The community's ministers have been there. I think it's right that people hear from them. But above all, of course, people don't really trust what politicians say automatically. They do trust what uh, the chief medical officer says, what the chief scientific advisor say. Um, and uh, rightly, the politicians and the experts have been giving very publicly on a daily basis uh, an update to the public. I think that balance is correct. And the chief medical officer Chris Whitty, who was a very senior official in my department when I was the Secretary of State for International Development he's uh, a very uh, considerable and accomplished public servant of great experience particularly on epidemiology and uh, certainly when I worked with him I thought that he was one of those experts who you could really trust and listen to and who, in a very understated way, said it as it is.
2: Now, Andrew, I mean, this is perhaps a little bit left field or seems so, at this stage, but it's not that long ago. We were talking about all the time, of course. Brexit. Um, the negotiation period uh, deadline is all coming up in a, a couple of months' time. I mean, the Prime Minister's avoided talking about this, but, I mean, it's kind of out of his hands. It, there has to be an extension now, doesn't there?
3: Well, I was talking to a constituent yesterday who was teasing me about whether or not uh, it was uh, a relief from brexit uh to be talking about uh one thing only coronavirus or 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 whether these were um or whether these were uh, two issues that we wish to goodness we weren't having to talk about but you know i i think that uh the uh, things will play out as they will play out on on brexit i have never believed that it is necessary to have a negotiation that goes on for 12 months. I think uh, if you look at the way in which the private sector reacts to these big negotiations that have to take place, it is possible to do it in much quicker time than that. Uh, But when the crisis is over, as it surely will be, we'll then be able to take a view. For now, everything has to be sublimated into fighting this crisis, saving lives, looking after the brilliant people who are working in our national health service, And getting through it, that's the top priority. And we will return to the negotiations when we are able to do so.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. I'm Roger Hearing.
1: And I'm Sebastian Salek. Roger, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we start with James Dyson giving uh, a boost to people who are trying to build ventilators. The Times reporting that he's awaiting government approval to set up an emergency construction plant. The billionaire manufacturer has identified a unit at a former wartime airfield in Wiltshire, very scenic, where his company had been planning to build an electric car. And they're hoping now to move very quickly uh, into large-scale production of ventilators, which of course are at a extreme shortage at the moment and that also comes as the government converts the Excel Conference Centre in London's Docklands into an emergency hospital so everybody repurposing what they've got into something useful to tackle this crisis.
2: Yes, I thought James Dyson moved everything to Singapore perhaps that was just in prospect. I don't just know. him. Just him maybe yes well <laughs> meanwhile house builders Persimmon, Bellway they're beginning to close their construction sites despite the government insisting that their work can and should continue. The Prime Minister's facing pressure to order sites to close to stop the spread of the virus, but his Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick, says some construction and maintenance work has to continue. We do need buildings maintained so that they can continue to be safe. We do need essential maintenance
1: to be done, fixing people's boilers and sanitation works. And there's also programs of works going on in the country, such as removing dangerous cladding from high-rise buildings, for example. And that takes us quite nicely into our next story. Tube carriages apparently still packed this morning. Comes amid a row between the government and the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Health Secretary Matt Hancock has claimed there is no good reason why timetables have been cut to the extent that they have. But City Hall is saying that ministers were told countless times that tube frequencies reflect the high levels of staff sickness and isolation. Of course, if you're putting yourself in isolation or if you're coming down with the coronavirus, you can't go and drive tubes. Uh, and that comes as 500 British transport police officers are also patrolling the mainline rail network to remind people that only essential travel is permitted. Seems like a bit of an odd decision to send people out there when you try and keep people at home.
2: Yes, I mean, it's all pretty self-defeating in lots of ways. I think a lot of it's probably more about the way it looks and the way it sounds, perhaps. Perhaps I'm being cynical rather more than actual, um, actual necessities of the science. But listen to this one. This is really interesting. Couples living in separate homes should either stay apart or move in together under the uk social isolation rules sweeping restrictions to limit public movement and contain the coronavirus have left people who are dating but not living together wondering if they'll still be allowed to see each other but the deputy chief medical officer for england jenny harris says partners in different households should ideally avoid visiting each other alternatively she says they should quote test the strength of their relationship and move in together so there we are you know dating advice from the Deputy Chief Medical (laughs) Officer
1: Cuffing season coming through very early this year I say back yourself move in if it doesn't work you know, you can move on with your life. I feel very smug. I moved in with my girlfriend in January. Perfect time to hunker down and let all of this pass. But anyway, let's move it on because we've got plenty to talk about. Officials telling Bloomberg today that the government is planning to shut down Parliament for four weeks from tonight. We talked about it in the first part of the programme. It makes sense, really, doesn't it, as several politicians have fallen ill, including uh, Health Minister Nadine Doris. So let's talk to Therese Raphael, our Bloomberg opinion writer, about this. Um, Raphael, but Therese, Rafael, your take on this, presumably, as I was saying to Andrew Mitchell, it stops the government being able to take more measures to combat the coronavirus. But on the flip side, you've got a lot of people travelling around the country and then gathering in this place. It sounds like a hotspot for the coronavirus.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think the the one thing to keep in mind is that they're actually only starting the Easter recess about a week early. So they were going to break anyhow. They're breaking a bit early. Uh, So a lot depends on how long this recession um, of parliament or suspension of parliament lasts. Um, I mean, there are good reasons, obviously, to keep apart um, lawmakers who are going out to their constituencies, 650 of them, and then coming back and sitting at very close proximity in the House of Commons. You know, they become super spreaders. It's absolutely the opposite of the government's advice for social distancing. So it really sends the wrong message. And you can understand why Parliament, uh, why the Speaker is, is you know, also keen to to uh, to end that. At the same time, you know, governance has to go on uh, and the government needs to be held to account and uh be represented in parliament and so as this drags on real questions will be raised about how legislation will be passed the government says it will reconvene parliament for emergency legislation i think the the bill that we're expecting to see go through uh by by tomorrow, it's in the House of Lords, uh, is just one of what is probably going to be a succession of measures to try to uh, keep the economy afloat during this period.
2: Yeah, the, is the constitutional implications of all this are rather fascinating, not least uh, reflecting on a story which uh, we've just uh, just broken, in fact, on the Bloomberg Terminal coming through from the Press Association. Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, has tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, and he, of course, is in his 70s. So uh, a certain element, I think, perhaps of concern. I'm sure we have the very best uh, of care, inevitably. Um, but this is really is something that is challenging so many parts of our constitution this
4: after all is the heir to the throne yeah i mean it's a the the virus is an equal opportunity uh, aggressor i guess one could say you know by some count um, most of us will get it at some point and obviously the people who are older or have any kind of uh, existing vulnerability or immunodeficiency are going to be uh, the ones that are hit hardest. But it, it has all sorts of implications when those making governing decisions or, as you say, constitutionally important roles um, are affected. So I think we're just really beginning to, to, to think about how this plays out. There are also big privacy concerns as governments uh, take powers that uh, allow them to track people's movements, policing powers. Some of this is beginning to be debated in France right now uh, as, as the French government is taking more and more authority. How easily uh, will people be able to reclaim those, those sorts of liberties and, and pr- privacy back once uh, they have been ceded to government for this crisis? These are all things we're going to have to be debating in our long period of uh, self-isolation. All right, Therese.
1: And then you've also been writing about the risk to medical professionals this week. The big issue that people have been talking about certainly is the lack of personal protective equipment, face masks and all the rest of it. But you go further, you say there's more than just that.
4: Yeah, absolutely. The 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 face masks and gowns that are that the government has promised are being distributed en masse are completely inadequate for lots of the medical profession and especially for surgeons. Uh, you know, heart attacks do not stop because of the coronavirus. Kids can still fall on their skateboards and need emergency surgery. You also have emergency dental operations. All of these surgeries uh, we've we've learned release uh, higher loads of the virus into the into the air and put surgeons at greater risk. So while we may get it from say you know proximity to somebody who has it or touching a handrail a surgeon is much more likely to get a higher load of the virus, which would produce a higher reaction. They need the full kind of astronaut style gear that we've seen in the videos in Wuhan, the the hazmat suits, but they don't have them. And the government isn't promising them. And indeed, the government's own protocol for what surgeons should wear falls far short, many surgeons say, of what's needed to properly protect them. So I'm hearing that a lot of surgeons are not only alarmed, but uh, increasingly saying they will be unable to operate and, and protect themselves, their surgical staff, and patients from the virus. Uh, you know, so this is, is quite a big issue. Uh, it, it's also going to be a big issue in the U.S., um, and I think we're only becoming aware of the, the risk to uh, not just the frontline uh, nurses and medical staff, but to the, those doing the emergency operations.
2: Yeah, and, and particularly, I guess, if you're bringing uh, also in retired me- me- medical professionals back to as who are coming back to serve in this, I mean, they they would have these problems, perhaps even more so.
4: Precisely, Roger, and that's what we've been seeing in Italy. So the Italian government, since March 11th, has just begun to publish uh, a really interesting data set showing the number of healthcare uh, professionals that are infected by the virus, but deaths among doctors, and it's striking. how First of all, how many have died? I think. When I checked this morning, there were 25 since just March 11th. Many of them um, are older and some of them have come back into the profession uh, clearly from, you know, from retirement. And as as medical staff are being drafted in, these are the more vulnerable uh, ones and they're not clearly not well protected.
1: And uh, this is something that one of your colleagues has been writing about, Fernando Giuliano, Uh, he's written a piece called, very provocatively, Boris Johnson's virus response is a fiasco. He says the British government and its advisors had the chance to learn from what was happening in Italy and they blew it. Over here there's been a lot of reliance on experts, that's certainly been the line from the government, so who's really to blame
4: here? Well, we've been writing about the government's response for a while and warning that it is behind what the empirical evidence is showing uh, works in China, where you know, we know that we're a couple of weeks behind Italy on the epidemiological curve, and we've seen how quickly the virus is ramped up. Uh, the government chose a sort of go slow, incrementally increasing the uh, restrictions imposed on people. And what my colleague, uh, you know, is is arguing quite, uh, quite convincingly is that this was exactly the wrong approach. But it's not just uh, Boris Johnson that shares the blame, but his, his chief medical officer, chief scientific officer, they are feeding in from the studies and they relied too much on, um, you know, on, on um, sort of Theories of what might work rather than looking at, say, China and Italy. And taking the very safe approach would have been to clamp down early and hard and try to buy time for the health services to ramp up capacity, to get in the personal protective equipment uh, with the full knowledge that, um, that a wave of, uh, you know, a tsunami, if you will, of people are, are heading into the hospitals.
2: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.